You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey, Steve, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Glenn. That's good. You're supposed to ask now, how am I? Oh, <laughs> how are you, Glenn? Although I, I don't ask people that because I'm afraid they're going to give me the actual honest answer and be like, oh, my God. And then it's going to be like a half an hour of that. So. Oh, no, I won't do that. I won't do that. I'm, I'm not doing very well, and I'll tell you why momentarily. Glenn Lowry, The Glenn Show. Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. And I'm with Stephen Tellis, who's professor of politics at Johns Hopkins University and a uh, research fellow or some eminence at Niskanen Institute or Niskanen Center, Center in Washington, yeah. D.C. That's so right. He's a political scientist. I'm an economist. I'm at Brown. Brown University, The Glenn Show. And Steve and I have known each other for a long time. Steve's written a lot of books. Uh, Steve wrote a book about uh, – what did you write a book about, Steve? (laughs) Well, I just wrote a book about uh, conservative opponents of Trump. Before Never Trumpers. That's what I was trying to think. I blocked on that, man. You know why I blocked on that? (laughs) I know. I know why you blocked on that. Uh, Before that, I wrote a book called The Captured Economy with Brink Lindsay on – uh, the role of uh, regulation in inequality. I wrote a book quite relevant for today called Prison Break on why conservatives are changing their mind on mass incarceration. Steve is a really smart political scientist and institutionalist uh, and uh, has been a friend for a long time. And we're arguing. Are we arguing or not about contemporary American politics, Steve? I don't, I don't know, think you're conservative well, enough. Well, the uh, well, the history of this is that Glenn keeps passing me ideologically back and forth. So, so I, 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 think, I figure you've got one more in you, though. When Biden when Biden gets elected, then you'll start criticizing him from the left for not uh, for not imposing full socialism. So I, I don't I give think so. More years. I don't. I don't think so, man. <laughs> uh, so, anyways. So what are we uh, yeah, no, about? I, no, I wanted to talk about us. I wanted to talk about uh, why I don't like the Never Trump book. I know you don't want to talk about the Never Trump book. Or do you want to talk about the Never Trump book? I'm happy to talk about whatever. I, I, got, my, I got my fists up. I'm ready. <laughs> we were, we've been talking for a long time about uh, uh, viewpoint diversity in uh, the academy, whether that's a reasonable goal and can it be achieved and if so, how and why should, we mat- why should it matter anyway? Uh, you've turned me on to a lot of really interesting people over the years, uh, from Mario Vargas Llosa's novels to uh, John Scritney's sociology, political sociology about uh, ethnicity and inequality, uh, to a lot of stuff. You were trained at Virginia, am I not mistaken? I was. I was trained in Virginia and actually quite relevant for our conversation today. Um, the three main people who were on my dissertation committee were three conservatives, were Jim Caesar, um, uh, who studied, and Martha Durthick, uh, who studied with Edward Banfield at Harvard, and Steve Rhodes, who studied with uh, Alan Bloom and Alfred Kahn at Cornell. I always so, thought of Rhodes as a very reasonable person. He's, uh, he wrote a book about how economists think about the world that I thought was a, was a very interesting book. And he has another, he has a new edition finally coming out. So you can. I see. So it's become that. a classic. No, I knew you were trained at Virginia, and I've always assumed that you were atoning for your conservative roots somehow. You were trying to become respectable. No, 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 no. I've always, I always joke at Niskanen. So I, I'm a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, and most of those guys had um, a past in libertarianism. Um, and uh, I always joke that I've always been exactly where we are now. 
that I haven't, I don't have any past. And, you know, I, I've had moments when I thought, you know, I got frustrated and fed up with, uh, with lefties. Um, but I've always been in sort of that sort of moderate democratic liberal, not left position, um, which may just be an absence of imagination on my part, but I've always been exactly where I am now. Um, and I think of myself well, as a liberal who learned from <laughs> I, w- I would say that's in the shadows. Okay. I remember your first book. It was about welfare, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about welfare reform. And it argued in part that, um, that liberals had, uh, had messed up. Um, and they messed up royally. Come on. They, yeah, they really, they, they really, really screwed up. Yeah, well, and in general, and I think, you know, we may get into this too, um, both welfare and crime are the kind of general social order issues that, uh, liberals continue to mess up, right? In lots of these cases, they, the public, I think this is true in crime as well. Um, the public actually has pretty sensible views, right? They want significant equality of opportunity and they want the maintenance and enforcement of basic rules of civil order, right? Um, and the problem is it's generally hard for them to get them, right? Both both parties, both ideological sides have an incentive to treat those as rival principles rather than reinforcing principles. Um, and so that was the argument of the welfare book. I think that same argument applies okay. today to crime and criminal To crime justice. and policing. Let me ask you this. Um do you think that there are values or principles like the family? Okay, the integrity of the family, the, if you will, sanctity of the family, the traditional family, this kind of idea, that uh, are threatened, you know, in this, you, you just set up this opposition between order and some kind of welfareist, uh, but, you know, when I look at the activists, I see them animated by very sharply uh, inscribed, very explicit uh, commitments to, to different things. So like for conservatives, they're committed to, quote unquote, the family. I mean, let me just put that in some broad mm-hmm. categorical thing. But the people who are the transgender advocating people who are the uh, anti-heteronormativity people who are the uh, uh, you know, cutting edge of, of woke activism, uh, with respect to uh, that issue would, would be kind of almost anti-family. I think you can even find that in movement for black lives literature and stuff like that. Not accusing anybody of anything, just trying to draw the contrast. And I'm asking you, my question to you is, uh, ought, uh, the political argument enter into that space where they're, and make explicit the contrast about values and ask for, democratic support for, you know, a particular commitment? And if so, where would you stand in that? Yeah, I mean, I, so I'll answer this in the way I want to answer it, which may not be the way you want me to answer it. Um, But the way I would say this is on a lot of these issues, um, you can really get distracted by an incredibly small unrepresentative set of activists on either side, right? Who who genuinely think about um, these issues in very sharply divided ways. And that's not the way most Americans who ultimately you have to get democratic consent for from uh, think about these issues. So I'm going to switch over, not on the transgender issue, because I don't know anything about that and don't have any interesting opinions on it. Right. But, 
criminal justice. If you, you know, just, I only meant that to be representative. Yeah, but, of but if you look at the criminal justice issue, which I do know something about, and you were just to look at African American opinion, right? Um, you know, the general position of Black Lives Matter is not the majority position of African Americans, even though in this debate, right, we're often talking that we have to do X, Y, or Z because we have to be allies or whatever with African Americans, right? Now, it's certainly the opinion of Black Lives Matter activists, and they have a perfectly legitimate position, but their position is very much representative of younger, more secular, more northern, more academic-inflected African-Americans, whereas younger, more southern, more ch- I'm sorry, older, more southern, more churchy African-Americans generally want some combination of police who actually do policing and protect them and then don't beat up their kid and nephew, right? That's Okay, let, want, let me right? suggest this. Let me, I'd like to get your reaction to this. So I think there's a major failure of representative democracy that is playing out and has been playing out for decades. That failure has to do with the inability of that voice amongst African-Americans. I'm talking about this uh, church-based voice or this kind of, you know, authentically uh, rooted in African-American cultural history going back to the 19th century uh, kind of voice. Um, it has been... Uh, uh, hijacked. There's a bait and switch that's going on. That voice and the pathos and suffering which gave birth to it, and John Lewis's uh, enshrinement is uh, very metaphorically apt here, is what makes the African-American claim that you said just a moment ago that we might want to defer to in, in solidarity uh, morally compelling. On the other hand, the mechanisms of communication and representation in society, I'm talking about who makes films and gets on TV, who edits magazines and newspapers, etc., who writes the speeches for politicians, who mans the barricades at the universities, are in the sway of a very modern, uh, postmodern, uh, critical uh view about capitalism, about American history, about whatever, whatever, about sexuality, identity, etc. And and it has appropriated the voice of this authentic, rooted uh, African-American sensibility that comes out of the actual uh, historical sufferings on behalf of what this modernistic uh, uh, complex uh, would have it be. And so it is, and, 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 uh, it is a kind of stealing of the moral currency, uh, on behalf of something that really is very not, not at all really connected to the experiences of the people. Uh, wow. and, and I, and I think, uh, to some degree, the Black Lives Matter phenomenon exemplifies this. I mean, look, I, I, I'm a, it's a little bit awkward position for me to be telling you what blind people think. Um, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, oh, so, so you think I'm wrong? No, well, I, I think you could, I think you could have a little slightly more subtlety on this point, which is, I think both of those positions, right? I mean, like, I, I would actually think that if you think about the black conservative position, right, is actually, is actually a very small percentage and a very, and actually a fairly marginal part of the black political tradition. When I'm thinking about who I'm talking about, I'm talking about Jim Clyburn, right? That is, it's interesting that Jim Clyburn immediately came out. And when people were talking about defunding, like said, 
you know, no, put the kibosh on that. And there was a big statement of black mayors, black mayors, right? Not just somebody, right, who said, you know, we're not in favor of defunding, we're in favor of reform, right? I think the real division is between a left side that is more or less what you're talking about that comes out of Black Lives Matter and one that's more rooted, I would actually say, in the institutions of black life, the church, um, and in, you know, in, to some degree in party politics, right? Um, and that's where you see a lot of ambivalence in that part of the black community, right? Now, culturally, you're right, in the organs of culture, universities, magazines, all that, right? You don't see a lot of people who come out of that tradition who gravitate toward either the university or journalism. And that makes it seem, I think, especially for lots of white left of center people, that the more radical left side of, of African-American politics is the more authentic or obvious one, right? But anyone who knows, you know, what, where, you know, ordinary working middle-class African-Americans are, that they're far more heterogeneous and that side that I would think of as the more institutionally embedded side of the African-American community is is probably a majority. At least as far as I'm thinking, I'm thinking about Michael Fortner's book. You know his book, don't you? Uh, know Silent Black Majority. Uh, I'm thinking about abortion. Uh, I'm talking about the political debate that has been raging for decades. I'm thinking about the border, immigration policy. Again, a debate that's been raging for decades. I'm thinking about the cops, which is now the uh, issue of the day. And I'm thinking about what is, quote unquote, the authentic interest of African-Americans somehow understood in the context of the full flow of the history and what is the articulated position of the representatives of the progressive edge of American politics speaking on behalf of racial justice vis-a-vis those issues. And I still want to reiterate my concern, a disconnect and a kind of bait and switch and an appropriation. I think black and brown, the phrase black and brown, and I, I don't begrudge my Hispanic, Hispanic, Latino brothers and sisters equal rights under the law. But come on, that's a move. That's a move. That it is. That is a creation of a kind of intersectional claim, and it's an appropriation. I just think that has to be acknowledged. Now we might want to try to defend that appropriation, and I'd be, I'd welcome the debate. But I think that has to be acknowledged. I think we may have talked about it. It may, it may actually may have been an email and not in blogging head, so we can we can do it all over again. But I, I think it's important to recognize how much of some of what you're talking about is a function of the nature of the party system. So I've always thought about intersectionality, right, as an idea, as an idea, an intellectual idea that ends up coming after a kind of power or partisan move. Right. It in a way tries to wave its hand over something that was done for party coalitional reasons and then give it a kind of moral sanctity. Right. And because the nature of modern parties is modern parties are coalitions. Right. And they're coalitions of groups who, if you were to go down into their sort of deep structure of their opinion, right, aren't entirely aligned. Right. But they all agree to work together. And the same thing is true on the Republican side, right? You know, business, um, social conservatives, gun owners, right? But so they all have to say, you know, we're making okay. this long coalition, right? Um, and Which means just to fill out the thought so everybody understands, because you and I have had this conversation, 
that they have got a give and take. And the position the party represents is not always going to be the position adopted by or in the interest of any particular element of the, uh, of the coalition. Right. I didn't say, I didn't say interest because I find that a little harder thing to say, but just in terms that, you know, the elite of those parties, the, of the those groups, the people who are sitting around the table when they're making that deal, right. Have to give and take, right. They have to say, okay, look, I'm working with, you know, pro-choice activists now. Right. We're in this coalition. And to, and to make this deal, we have to have a kind of non-aggression pact. Right. We have to all say that we're not going to mess with the thing that really matters to the other. Right. But then and then isn't it the job of the scribe like me and you to point out the fact that that's what's going on and to make clear to the people on behalf of whose interest and uh, representation this activity is going on, what's actually happening to demask it, to, to pull the cloak back on it? Yeah, except I would say, look, this is an inherent feature of how we organize power, right? Power in the United States is organized by political parties. Um, and we know no other way really to organize power. Now, it is the case of intellectuals, I think, should say that those, you know, there's always this space between the voice that comes out of representatives who have, have these other connections, right? They're connected to their group, but they're also connected to these other people they're in a coalition with, and therefore they're cross-pressured, right, in a way that um, means that they can't simply enunciate the actual voice of their group. Although, again, the, the important point is African Americans are heterogeneous, right? I resist the idea that we should talk about them. Again, in any public opinion polls you look at on lots of these issues, right, we shouldn't say they have an authentic voice, right? I think in lots of these cases, they're divided right down the middle. Now, the point I would make is in most other advanced industrial countries, right, um, you know, ethnic minorities vote for a, a right-of-center party, right? So you can have that division that gets manifested in the fact that those groups are spread across both parties, right? The Republican Party for various reasons, has not been a very welcome home for the more right-of-center parts of the African-American community, and that's why they're all shoved into the Democratic Party, right? I don't. So that's my read on that. Okay, well... well Canadian conservatives get votes from people um, from, uh, from racial and ethnic minorities. British, the Tories get, get votes. Australian ones do. Everybody else does other than the Republican Party. So... That tells you something. I'm going to have to think about that. I, I take the point. And if there was, and the, the last thing I'll just, just say on this is, if there was a legitimate right of center party that African Americans could give their votes to, then you would see more of that heterogeneity present. Right now, you only no, see. The I, I think your theory of party formation is is relatively sparse. I don't, I don't know how parties uh, form or how they deform or reform, I think, though, that in the current environment, it would be extremely difficult for any Republican outreach to Blacks to get traction, in part because it wouldn't be taken seriously by anybody, would it? I mean, it would, it would be uh, scoffed at by, uh, by the barons, uh, you know. I don't know. I mean, but again, I, so, I think you may be. I mean, no, let me just make this point, Steve. 
we don't hear about the level of abortion amongst African-Americans, the overrepresentation of blacks amongst aborted babies. There are no stories that um, tell from that point of view, social inequality uh, from a pro-life point of view, pointing out the higher incidence of, quote, baby killing, close quote, amongst blacks. We don't see that story. We don't know the names of the kids that are gunned down daily by black criminals in the black community. Nobody is writing that story. Nobody has embedded themselves under deep journalistic cover for the Atlantic or Harper's or something like that. So as to tell from the inside in the powerful, evocative human emotion of what is actually happening when you lose a three-year-old to a gunshot uh, thing or whatever. The story doesn't exist. It's not being written. Um, the the uh, arguments that might, like the border, the, the, the African-American polls that you are, uh, people responding to the polls that you might be citing about opinion are informed by the way in which all these issues are being framed. And that framing and reportage is in the hands of people who are ideologically motivated. So I'm, I'm still back to my point. It's not just parties. I'm back to my point. They're, they're uh, you know, uh, standing on the, uh, uh, the, in making their claims, they're standing on the African-American situation, but they're, they're misappropriating it. Well, again, I'm sorry to repeat myself. I also think that, you know, they, I mean, again, just going on public opinion polls, right? But there's other kinds of survey things, right? That 40 or so percent of African-Americans who say consistently support BLM, they support defunding, just on that set of issues, right? That's an actual significant rooted part of African-American plenty. That isn't just coming out of nowhere. Those aren't just people who appropriated some ideas of white people, right? That's an actual tradition in the African-American community just as much as the other is. And again, I I would push back a little bit. I think in the weeks after um, George Floyd, I think you saw a very unbalanced conversation, but I think already you're starting to see journalists inching up to what you're talking about. So just today, there's a story in the New York Times, right? Um, Distrust of the Minneapolis police, comma, and also the effort to defund them, right? And so you can actually start seeing that, what I think is actually ambivalence on these issues, right? The dominant position of African-Americans is they want some combination they can't seem to get, which is not the BLM position, right? They want actual police, right, actually going on policing and actually responding to calls for service and actually keeping gangs from each other and all that, right? And they want those police to stop being abusive to them, right? That's, you know, and I think that is starting, you're starting in the Washington Post, you know, you started seeing stories like this. So I think you're already seeing this wheel begin to turn in a way in which the more of the heterogeneity of the African community is out there. Now, I do think there is a fact that maybe this is going to sneak us up to the discussion about, um, uh, about universities, right, which is that um, that side of the African-American experience is generally less represented in the professoriate, right? Again, what I, I'm clearing is not black conservatives. It's the Jim Clyburn, you know, side, which is liberal, right? They're Democrats. They're not Tom Sowell, right? But that part, gen- those people generally tend don't, to not go in nearly the same degree into university teaching, 
into the kind of things that produce books, to produce journalism, to all that other stuff, right? And so there, I think that there's a an effect on the larger sort of high-level discourse that's a function of how, you know, who thinks that the university and other and, and journalism in that degree is for them, right? Is a place that they can actually go and write stories or write books or do research, right? That comes out of the worldview that they actually experience, right? So that was my attempt at a transition. How did I do? I think you did fine. Let's talk about universities. So, so I've been actually thinking for a long time, and I know we've talked about this, about the, the, the phenomenon of the ideological skew of universities. And I've written about it, right? I wrote a book called The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement that was partially about how conservatives tried with some success to alter the, um, the ideological composition of the legal professoriate. Um, but at the same time, as conservatives have done this for, for decades, right? You've been involved in lots of these efforts, right? Um, the numbers on everything we have, every survey we have, is that the number of conservatives and even moderately right of center people in um, social sciences and humanities keeps going down, and even to some degree, apparently, in sciences, right? Um, and there's two questions. There's one about, well, why is that? How did this happen? And then there's the other question, which I think is probably primary, which is why do we, why do we care, right? Um, conservatives okay. obviously care because they want, you know, that's to some degree that's an important, powerful institution, and they want their cut. But I'm not a conservative, and I think it's a problem. Um, and so I think the first question is, what are the reasons why we might think that this is a problem, except for people who are actually conservatives and think about this as a power issue? Yeah, let me, let me just inter- interject something here. I'm remembering a lecture. I remember when I first came to Cambridge in 1982, uh, I was a newly appointed faculty member at Harvard and was all, you know, in awe of being in Harvard Square and, you know, all the different lectures and the exciting things that were going on. And Robert Nozick, the great, late great uh, philosopher, Robert Nozick was given a lecture um, uh, under the title why do intellectuals hate capitalism? So posters had been spread around the campus uh, announcing this talk. And on one of them, and uh, Nozick opened with this anecdote, on one of the posters, someone had written in ink, because we're smart. <laughs> okay, and then uh, Nozick went on to try to make his argument, which he's a libertarian, uh, basically to make his argument that would a smart person hate capitalism to which his answer was no. And he gave, he gave his reasons why, but here, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling the end of the story because it's apropos of why should we care? Because we want to be smart. Uh, that is to say, we want to, we want to get it, get it right. Uh, so I see the, I don't see it from a diversity point of view from, a point of view of integrating law school faculty such that there is many critical race theorists as there are law and economics professors. I see it from a point of view of arguing on the principle of his capitalism. And I just give this as an example. There are many, we were talking about the family and traditional cultural values earlier, uh, uh, you know, kind of right or wrong. I mean, uh, I want I want ideological diversity because I think I don't even get the right answer when I when I I think it's a corruption I I think the monochromatic 
uh, sort of uh, philosophic ideological character of much of, of academia is a kind of corruption. It's like in a European country when back in the Cold War days when the, the Marxist-Leninists get control of the university system and nobody can get a chair unless they sign off on the party line. It's, it's a little bit like that. And it, and it debases. It's a debasing of the, of the currency. Right. So let me say, so I've actually often been uncomfortable with the position of places like Heterodox Academy, um, which where, do, I am, I'm, I'm uh, like, where I am a member. I just want people yeah, to know and that. I am too. Um, so I, but I don't like the language of diversity. Um, That's what I'm saying. But the argument for, you know, why we care about having right of center people in universities is that conservatives have part of the truth. Right. I think that's the fundamental reason. Right. That is. And that also tells you that, you know, I you know, the reason I care about it is I learned an enormous amount from conservatives. My education would have been, you know, that I learned something that I think is true. Right. From them. Um, and so I am a pluralist, though. I think, you know, you know, everybody's capture on the truth is partial. Right. People have got a piece of it. Right. And some of these ideologies are absolutizing a single principle, right? Um, that's the way intellectuals often work, right? They purify principles and then that in fact, in reality, you want multiple tools to think about problems to decide what is in fact a problem, right? That's one thing that, um, uh, that different, you know, points of view, different ideologies do is they help you think about things, those problems that you might not otherwise. But the, the important point is there's no diversity. It's not like the argument isn't that, well, there happen to be X number of conservatives and therefore they should have represented representation in the university by their numbers. It's that people would be poorly educated if they were not exposed to that part of the human experience and human thought, right? That's how I think about it. And that's why in that if you don't have a certain number of people who come out of that sort of intellectual tradition, then important insights that people need, that students need to know, that other intellectuals need to think straight won't. Okay. I want to give you a case. I want to give you a case and see how you react to it. Modern economics, it doesn't have any Marxists taken seriously. So I can remember, I'm just old, when Marxism was taken seriously, when I was coming along as an undergraduate and then as a young graduate student in the 60s and 70s, People read Das Kapital. They read it. Uh, you tried to understand what the Marxian system was if you wanted to. It was, a, it was an intellectual response to the problems of modernity, to the advent of industrial, uh, you know, capitalism. Um, and I think, you know, and there was a new left. There was a, there was a school of kind of a neo-Marxian kind of, you know, a socialist Marxian kind of uh, critics of, quote unquote, neoclassical economics. Well, 50 years has gone by and the dust has settled. The neo, the new left has had their heads up their butt. Um, modern economics in its neoliberal instantiation scientifically vector dominates the leftist, uh, uh, view. Uh, the, where you'd have gone forward with the idea that a good department had to have a representation of left thinking economists from the seventies and eighties and nineties, you would have handcuffed the advance of our understanding of important questions, 
Like, how do you reform medical care? Like, what happens in a global system when you have currency crises? Like, how do financial markets work? Like, how does uh, venture capital work, et cetera? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm not giving in quite yet on, on the question of principle and, and, and arguing things, these things out on principle. Well, no, but again, I, I think that's right, right? That if you don't think about this as diversity, right? And you think that there's some set of things or people out there who need to be represented, which we both agree is the wrong way to think about this, right? Then you can say, look, you know, we think this idea is just wrong, right? That doesn't have any value. It doesn't, it's not worth, it doesn't have a contribution to make. And therefore we can say that that's not one of the ideas that, you know, is going to be represented in our intellectual community. Now in economics, uh, I would say that, <clears throat> you know, there is a kind of intellectual closure in economics. Um, and there are a bunch of things I think the economics field didn't actually understand very well for a very long time, in part because of what got segmented out as being not economics, right? So you think about people like Robert Wade or Hajun Chang, people who studied industrial, especially industrial policy, right? What, what was the explanation for the you know why East Asian countries got um, got as wealthy as they did right and it turns out lots of people who study that very closely say that lots of things that government governments did that don't fit into most of the standard economic models were actually very important for that and there are people like Danny Roderick now who who are serious economists who recognize that lots of that insight was important and they say look there's lots of things that you know to understand that you need to have a way of doing economics that's hard to fit into, right? And so there is a risk to that. I would say it wasn't so much the Marxists, right? You could toss most of them out um, without any loss, but there's lots of sort of more institutionalist kinds of um, economists who tend to be more now in political science and sociology, who I think do really important work in, um, in political economy and economics has been the worst for not, especially for not having that being part of its conversation. And the methods that those people tend to use, which tend to be more, in some cases, ethnographic, institutional, right? It's hard to get trained to do that kind of economic work in economics departments, right? Hold on, yeah, hold on. I mean, you're now talking, I think, about I don't think economics is the whole world. I'm, I'm not saying everything right. is economics. There, there's sociology, there's political science, there's history, there's institutional study. I, I'm saying I wanted I want to understand how wages are determined. I want to know how exchange rates move. I, I, I want to know what the implication of a significant reduction in investment is for the growth of the economy. I, I want to know whether or not anticipations of inflation will cause the spread between interest rates on the short and the long term loan. To okay. be a particular thing. No, these are, hold on. I didn't say these are, not si- these are scientific questions. This is what I'm on, this is what I mean when I say economics. I want to know if you pass a law telling venture capitalists that they have to do this, then the innovation rate of technology advance in Silicon Valley will be affected to that extent. These are particular specific questions and, and they are scientific questions. And there really is only one coherent path in the forest for answering questions like that, basically, I'm arguing. It's the framework that 
economists have developed through the 20th and early 21st century of uh, applying formal analysis and statistical inference to uh, to the, the interactions that uh, that are uh, being described. I mean, we may not want to go too far down this particular rabbit hole, but I do think you know when you you what you when you were listing the kinds of things that are real economics that real ec- economists solve, right? You didn't really include right the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, right? Which I think of is is in fact well, the, I, I would I would fundamental question right that um, a field called economics, which is in fact a historically contingent, you know, we not to get into into that right. But um, if you want to ask that question, right, why are some countries rich and some countries are poor? You need a different set of uh of tools um and not just so what do you what do you make of asamaglu and robinson why nations fail i think what? that's a very important work but if you look at the citations right um they're drawing very deeply on lots of forms of knowing right that are um themselves not indigenous to what economics has become right and uh, so, robinson is a political scientist uh darren is an economist very serious, right so uh, he, he's very much in the tradition that i'm extolling here right but i think if you talk about asimelio right i mean he himself says that economists need to be um trained in more in a more in a more varied way not just being able to you know make careful causal inferences and all of that okay sort of- okay so the big political economy questions the questions that animated adam smith and uh the wealth of nations and that animated david ricardo and that animated karl marx and others uh, john stewart mill and others john maynard keynes and others uh, right. joseph schumpeter and others also animated paul samuelson and uh James Tobin and I mean, you know, uh, I don't think it's an either or. Uh, I don't think I have to choose between a political, economic, historically rooted, institutionally sensitive understanding of how the modern world was created. Uh, what is the rule of law? What role is property? How much did John Locke or David Hume or somebody see that was really important? I don't think I have to choose between that on the one hand and getting it right. When the question is raised about what's the impact of the minimum wage or a, a rent control regulation or an exchange rate uh, intervention. Well, because I think what we're trying now, I mean, just to see why we're talking about this, just to remind ourselves why. Yes, we're, okay. Because we're in a rabbit hole. <laughs> we're, no, I don't think we're in a rabbit I'm trying to get us out. When you're in a rabbit okay, hole, okay. you got to stop digging. So we were <laughs> talking about ideology without talking about ideology. We were trying to talk about that by talking about economics first. I think. So the point is, would economics be a more productive discipline if there was more um, conflict inside of it, right? There was more conflict about ways of knowing, right? Um, that would sort of grind up against one another and force each other to ask questions that are somewhat, you know, um, exterior to the kinds of methods that either one have, right? And so economics has generally become more homogenous in its way of knowing. And then the question is, would it be smarter? Would they, would they ask smarter questions? Would they be less likely to beg the question? Would they be less likely to, you know, if they actually had more than the, the set of tools that economics currently has in their quiver? If we were, tra- if we were training people like you, right? I should just use that example. I think sometimes you pretend to be more orthodox economics than thou um, as a kind Thank of you. as a kind of move, right? 
But the point is you yourself have decided that you needed more than that set of tools to do the kind of thinking you want to do. So can I tell a story? You can tell this, this the is your, story is it's still 1982 Cambridge. It's still 1982. I'm at the Afro-American studies department at Harvard, as well as the economics department. I'm jointly appointed. And this was one of the most important things that happened to me in my intellectual development was that I took the Afro part seriously. And I had colleagues like Orlando Patterson and sociology and, uh, Martin Kilson in political science and whatnot. And these were serious uh, black intellectuals who were, you know, they, and they, uh, so I ended up reading sociology and I ended up reading politics. You know this because, uh, uh, we, we talked about that a lot early in our, in our relationship. And I, I think it did make me into, I mean, I made the choice. I made the choice of not going to MIT. I had an offer to go to MIT. Uh, my, but my old teachers yeah. told me, that uh, I'd have to get serious. If I went to MIT, my major intellectual work would have to be scientific economics. And the alternative was the Kennedy School, where Tom Schelling was telling me, you know, come here and you can do anything you want. Uh, and it was early in the development of my public intellectual thing. But I don't regret it. That's the point I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is veering away from scientific economics saved me from, uh, you know, uh, a kind of uh, narrowness and tunnel vision that I think uh, I not, I would not have recovered from, right. uh, <laughs> you know. But I, but I guess I think the, the point is, and again, when I think about economics, right, and I am uh, <clears throat> someone who's learned an enormous amount from what you might think of as standard, normal, elite university style economics, um, I think I have a hard time thinking just with that about how the economy works just with that set of tools, right? I find I think more carefully when I have to square that with um, a more historical, institutional, sociological, organizationally embedded, you know, way of thinking, right? Now, the point is, I think the same thing is true to some degree with ideology, right? Um, That people get lazy, right? Um, They take lots of things for granted when you have ideological homogeneity in some ways that you do when you have methodological homogeneity, right? Methodological homogeneity or can our theoretical homogeneity can often allow you to mistake your simplified model for reality, right? Because there's not somebody constantly saying, well, what about right? This thing that's outside of the simplifications you did for the purpose of your model. And ideologies are simplifications, just like theoretical moves in social science disciplines are radical simplifications, right? And because that, I think there's an argument that you want to have that sort of conflict um, to be constantly making people aware of all of the things they're assuming to do do their analysis, right? Um, All the, in some cases, the embedded ideology that's inside of their seemingly scientific model, right? And unless you actually have people who have the self-interest from actually having a different worldview, then those things get more and more simplified and people get more and more mistaking that simplification for reality. So that's, I think, the argument about why these things, this discussion we're having in economics and discussion about ideology actually have something in common with one another. Okay, and if I'm following you, but you don't like diversity, but it seems like you're saying ideological uh, multiplicity of commitment allows for a productive 
exchange. Everybody's got a partial hold on the truth, but it ossifies into a fixed and rigid false uh, uh, acknowledgement of reality if there's homogeneity of ideological commitment. I think it's... Right. it's but then, I, but I think, right, I think that point you can call diversity. Now, which thing, you, which parts of that, you know, that diversity you want to have represented is a substantive judgment about who actually has something of value to say, right? So I actually can say people who do historical institutional work on development, right, have a very important grasp on some part of the truth in a way that Marxists don't, right? I don't think I have to have Marxists represented because I don't think they they have anything of value to add, right? And the same is going to be true on forms of conservatism, right? Um, that there are forms of conservatism that have very important, you know, basic insights, right? And lots of conservatives who don't necessarily have anything particularly useful to say, right? So if there are people who did, you know, racial essentialism or something, right? I would say, you know, I don't know that I need to have that represented, even though 20% of Americans may be white nationalists, right? I don't think we're okay. worried has to have that representation. Okay, so we've been talking so far about why should we care? Maybe we should talk a little bit now about um, how how could it happen or can it happen? Yeah, that- uh, a greater degree of ideological mo- of, of variance of commitment within the academic institutions be achieved. Uh, so, I'm, what do you what do you have to well, say so about I'm that? I'm increasingly pessimistic. Um, so, I recently uh, I pr- read a book that I'd sort of skimmed before, which is Neil Gross's book on um, why professors are liberal. Um, and uh, I thought this was a really powerful, important piece of work uh, that I recommend to you and your readers. And um, what Gross argues is that um, it's not discrimination in the traditional sense, right? It's not that, like, you know, departments are getting all these applications and they're figuring out who the conservatives are and they're not hiring the conservatives and they're hiring the liberals, right? Or the left or the people on the left, right? Um he argues what I think of as more as a disparate impact analysis, right? Which is we've constructed the university to be a left space, right? In the same way we think about nursing, right? Nursing not that long ago was just viewed as a gendered occupation, right? So men didn't even think about when they were like little boys and they were 11 and thinking, when I grow up, I want to be a nurse, right? They said, no, because nurses are women. Right. And that increasingly academia is becoming coded in that way. Right. Little 11 year old conservatives. Right. Don't think, oh, I'm going to go up and be, be an academic because they think, well, that's just that's just definitionally not right. Right. No, conservatives don't become professors. Right. Um, and universities do lots of things to encode the institution that way. Right. Often unintentionally, right? Um, they do things where, especially as institutions become more homogenous that way, they stop even noticing that they're doing things that are ideologically encoding, right? When they ask people to put things on their syllabus, right? Or check on the racial distribution of who the authors were on the things they're assigning students or the student activities, right? All end up embedding, you know, fundamentally left of center, um, you know, all those things basically 
send the signal to people on the left that they're at home, right? This is a place for them. And conservatives increasingly get the signal that this is not a place for them, right? And that does all of the work of discrimination, right? Nobody has to actually differentially treat anyone, right? Because all the work happens through the disparate impact of the effect of the signals the institution sends about who who belongs and who is marginal. You're saying that the conservatives self-select themselves out of academia as a pursuit in life? Not only that. So here's the, yeah, so that, no, self-select is not exactly what I just said, right? Um, another way to say that is they're getting the message, right? Nobody has to actually, you know, and again, I think there's obviously connections from ways of thinking about what are the sources of racial disparities. No blacks need apply. Right. But no, but you don't even have to do that. Right. If you have a, if you have an institution that's all whites, right. That sends a signal about what kind of person becomes a professor and then people don't apply because they think it's not a space. You know, this, I think that's a coherent position. Let me just finish, right? That has nothing to do with the actual content of the ideological leftist beliefs about capitalism, about the family, about the American nation state, uh, about uh, literary interpretation, about the relative significance of the quantitative fields and the humanistic fields. I don't think most of the, I think most of the work is being done by this much more, A, so I think one, I think the second thing is the, the actual discrimination isn't necessary if people believe discrimination exists, right? So if you, it may be that in fact, and I don't think this is true, but it may be that, um, you know, nobody anywhere in the university system actually treats conservatives different when they apply to graduate school, when they apply for their first job, all those other things, right? But if conservatives believe that they will be discriminated against, right, then you're going to get all the same effect as if they uh, were, in fact, discriminated against, right? Because they're just not, you know, the old New York lottery, you know, slogan, you can't win if you don't play, right? Well, if you don't, if you believe that you're always going to lose, right, then you're not going to apply. And that is one interesting effect of conservatives themselves criticizing the university so much, right, is that the kids are listening, right? And their elders are all saying that universities are super discriminatory, so they say, oh, well, okay, why would I ever apply to be a grad student? Because I'm never going to actually, I'm never going to make it. And I think all of those forces are way more powerful in this process than anything that looks like classical discrimination behavior. Okay, it sounds like you're counting angels on the head of a pin to me. I mean, here's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of this argument that I associate with James Heckman about audit studies, when they send the matched pairs of customers or renters or employee applicants, and they then calibrate whether they get the same treatment. He says uh, they, that those studies measure the sentiment of the average employer, but it's the sentiment of the marginal employer that actually determines whether or not people are discriminated against. So there's a sorting that goes on. There are non-discriminatory employers out there, but, their uh, whatever proportion of the population, uh, if you just send auditors at random, you're going to find some discrimination. But actually, the employment is happening at the margin uh, to a pretty great extent. So, the, you know, they're, they're not realizing discriminatory intent or something of this kind. 
Well, let me uh, say just on, on this, right? So one, and you know this from being in hiring committees, right? In general, that process is not a highly majoritarian process, right? Um, often you only need one or two people who feel very strongly. Yeah, that's true. To get somebody dinged, right? And so you only need, right? And again, often that process can happen without anybody actually having to stand up and say what they're doing, right? One thing, you know, we get, we get jobs at Johns Hopkins, we get 300 applications, right? And a couple of us just sit there and sort through them, right? Quickly, because we got to cut it down to a level we can actually read, right? And it's very easy to have one person who happens to feel pretty strongly that they don't like conservatives in, in a process like that to have somebody to have, you know, ideology enter into that process and be highly effectual. But the more important uh, thing. But is, I'm, I'm confused at this argument, Steve. It just seems to leave out so much. I mean, whose books get published? Who, whose articles get cited? What topics do graduate students want to pursue uh, for their PhDs? Uh, what's getting published in the journals? Who, who are the editors of these uh, journals? What's being defined as the cutting edge of the discipline? Which questions are interesting? All, all of these things are endogenous. They're, they're being decided upon, and yet they, they are, they, the exclusion is what I'm trying to say just in short compass. It's not merely at a point of hiring. It, 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 it is, uh, it's, it's much more diffuse and uh, insidious uh, I guess I, uh, than I simply say, an act of discriminatory hiring. Right. Well, that's what I'm, I, again, I'm trying to get us to not think about discriminatory hiring and think about how all the other ways that both the university and disciplines are constructed ends up, again, doing the work of discrimination. So I'll give you one other example, which is closer to what you're talking about, right, which is at least in political science, we hire by subjects, right? So we go out and we say, we want somebody who does East Asian politics, or we want somebody who does politics of gender or whatever it is, right? And we may not at all have any discriminatory intent, right? But if all the subjects we're searching for are subjects that generally tend to attract people who are left of center, and we never subject do searching in the in the subjects that conservatives tend to disproportionately go into, then we're only going to hire people who are left of center. And that's going to then have a recursive effect because then people are going to say, why would I go into military studies? Because they never search, you know, nobody ever hires in military studies, right? So even if I'm interested in could do high quality work in sociology of the military in the way that Charles Moscos used to do, right? Nobody, nobody hires in that anymore, so nobody goes into it, even though that tends to be the kind of work that conservatives are going to be much more interested in, right? And so, also, again, the more these... I want people to know, I'm sorry to interrupt, Steve, I just want them to know Charles Moskos brings a smile to my face, the late, great sociologist Charles Moskos of many books, including a, a book that he uh, did with John Sibley Butler, All That We Can Be, which is about affirmative action in the U.S. military, which is, a, is still worth reading today. Uh, for its, uh, you know, important institutional analysis. So thanks for remembering Charles Moss. Right. Peter, his son, who comes sometimes visits uh, the Glenn Show, would be happy to know about that. Yeah, no, P- Peter's a good is a good guy. But again, things like studying police in that particular way, right, in the way that James Q. Wilson used to do, right? Yeah. Um, the military, religion, um, you know. Yeah, tell me about right, it. Right, there's lots of those things that those generally tend to be the kind of things 
that conservatives are interested in, right? But if the university is not interested in those, right, then that's going to send a signal that there's no place for people like that to do it, right? And I think, so I do, and I, I, that's... But I, I just, you, you somehow avoid talking about the contempt that the centrist opinion in the universities has for these very things, the contempt for military institutions, the contempt and animosity toward religion and religious sentiment, uh, the antipathy toward the police and toward bothering to study what they actually do. Uh, these ideological positions are, uh, it, you know, I, I, I don't want to get so mired in the institutional analysis that I forget to be mad about the fact that these people have their heads up their butts. Well, I guess I don't find being mad very helpful. Very productive. Um, my, wi- my, wi- my wife once uh, <laughs> said when we were first uh, meeting, she said, Steve, you're coldly rational. Um, and that often on the thing that, that most bothers me, my instinct is to go to coldly rational. Because when I think about what I want to do about it, right, I need to know how this institution is functioning, right? To know where is the lever. Now, the problem is I'm having a hard time finding a lever, right? Because one problem is this has gotten so deep, right? Not so much in economics, but in sociology and political science um, that you can go, if you were to look, if you were a university president, imagine somehow a freak of nature happened and Glenn Lowry became president (laughs) of Brown, right? A hard thing to imagine, right? And you got in there and you stood up on your hind legs and said, I want to, I'm going to, you know, hire, hire me some conservatives in sociology. Oh man, <laughs> you can't do it. Right. And it I, would be a bad, and it would be a bad idea too. When there's, I mean, I mean, you, you know, but I take your point. You can't, you can't. Right. So one thing is again, at least at the lateral side, it's gotten so bad that you've got a, just a serious pipeline problem. Right. And so I think what the problem is, well, first of all, if you wanted to do something about this, you would have to affect the sort of people at the entry level, right? Oh, I'm and sorry. You're saying there aren't any sociologists out there of a conservative persuasion, which is true. I, mean, I was thinking I was thinking that the president of a university doesn't get to tell the sociology department who gets hired as a sociology well, That's a separate problem, right? That's an institutional problem, right? So the people who most sense that there's a legitimation problem for the university, right? If the university is seen as an entirely ideologically and partisan sort of partial institution, that's a legitimation problem, right? I do think there are university presidents who recognize that, right? Now, that's because their institutional position with donors, with politicians, with other people, right, makes them feel that in a way that most university faculty don't, right? They don't feel that legitimation problem. Right. And so the question is what, you know, and as you were saying, university presidents, if you, unless you were like John Silver, right, John Silver could just like go and create a new, you know, department because he didn't like the existing one, which is in fact what he did when he was at BU. Right. Um, But most university presidents can't do that. And so, and right, they can't just go out and, and hire many conservative sociologists or political scientists because there aren't that many. So they would have to affect it at the pipeline point. They would have to find some way to convince potential conservative graduate students that the water is warm and they should come and study there, right? And then the question is, what's the lever they have for that? 
Okay, but I, I, before you go into that, I, I just want to remember John Silver for a minute. You're touching all these uh, memories. Uh, also, the late, great John Silver ran for governor of Massachusetts, could have won that election, but he shot himself in the foot. Uh, took over Boston University when it was a sleepy, uh, uh, you know, uh, streetcar uh, urban college and, and built it into uh, a really fine institution. Uh was tyrannical and uh, megalomaniacal and probably suffered from a Napoleon complex. He stood about five, six, and he had a shriveled arm, was an absolutely brilliant man, a philosopher by training. And uh, I was one of the people that he brought to Boston University in the early 1990s that uh, was a part of something that was really wonderful, which was the university professors to which you just gave uh, notice uh, that was his independent uni- college within a university where he could just appoint people like Christopher Ricks, uh, like Roger Scruton, yeah, like Jeffrey Hill, the poet. Uh, I mean, he could just appoint people, uh, and, and like Glenn Lowry. Uh, oh, not that well. my, I was a university professor, but my economist colleagues were very happy to have me. But I'm sure some of these people, the literary people. And uh, whatever, weren't so happy about some of these people that he was bringing in. Ellie Wiesel should not be forgotten, uh, was, a, was a university professor at Boston University. John really did change Boston University. He faced down the union. Howard Zinn had been on the faculty at Boston University when John Silver came around. Francis too, wasn't she? Uh, who? Francis Fox Piven, I think, was in the... Yes, Francis Fox Piven was there and others. I, many distinguished members of that faculty fled uh, the tyrannical uh, John <laughs> Silber reign. But on the whole, I think the university has uh, has moved a very significant notch from where it was. And certainly the economics department where I was appointed became a top 20, top 15 department for a while. I, I don't know where it is right now, but it was a very good department for a long time. But I think the only the point though is short of being somebody like John Silber, right? It's very hard given the institutional and highly decentralized structure of universities, right? It's hard to actually, and I think it's really hard for any university to do very much about this, especially if you think about it as a pipeline problem on its own, right? Um, you know, you could, you know, your president could go around to the political science department and economics departments and say, you guys really need to be doing more affirmative recruitment of conservatives, right? You need to go down to AEI and talk to all of their class of research assistants, right? And tell them that the water's warm and they ought to go and study. But Okay, I've got an idea, Steve. You're not going to like it. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, in 1968, 69, 70, 72, there's something called uh, Black Studies, African-American Studies, Afro-American Studies came into existence and flourished, has come to flourish in a certain niche in the universities. And uh, you could draw an analogy and you could say that many people who wanted to see a a more Black-centered intellectual presence, and I'm I'm not saying that pejoratively at all, I mean, just simply wanted there to be more study of these issues uh, from a certain point of view, uh, didn't feel that they could go through the departments and, and, and an area of studies was created. What would be wrong? I'm not advising it. I'm just trying to send a, a, a question to you uh, with conservatives, quote unquote, following a similar path and, and trying to create uh, their own silo 
If the university is a collection of these uh, departments, which are these silos, which have autonomy over judging expertise within their realm, uh, create its own kind of silo of uh, conservative studies and then poach on economics, sociology, literature, and all the rest with, uh, with a, uh, you know, uh, conservative uh, uh, predisposition. I think you can answer your own question there, can't you? Oh, you got to make me into this around, around on you, right? I think you obviously know what's wrong. I mean, one, <laughs> I mean, it's stupid. It sounds stupid. You know, it, again, it, I mean, you I say Afro was stupid or you think no, they're distinguishable? Saying, at least I know I, I have no opinion. I have no interest in having an opinion on that question. I will not answer it. Oh. But the conservative studies, oh. right, sounds, you know, it, you know, part of it is because one thing you want, right, is conflict. Right. You want them not just to be a ghetto. You want them not just to be siloed. Right. You want them to be there mixing it up, you know, also challenging their own ideas. Right. Also, I don't want the idea of an institutional. Thing. I don't see why these it's things don't apply word for word to Afro. I don't see why they don't apply word for word. Uh, they, I mean, they, they would appear to they would appear to. Opinion. You don't want to uh, ghettoize them. You want them. Uh, you want them integrated into the disciplines. I mean, I do think there's an argument that um, you know some of the the so one way the conservatives tried to solve this is through centers. So like Robbie George has a center at Princeton. Harvey Mansfield has one at Harvard. There's a bunch of these things that are designed to. Create. They're very small. These are very small. Well, these they have people. their programs. Dude, and they man. give a home. They give a home to people to come right. to seminars and things like that. But um, and that I think you know kind of makes sense. I I don't think there's disciplinary knowledge. Steve, I'm not trying to put you on the pot. Excuse me, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I want the reason I'm I'm harping on this is because I think at the center of this is the authority to declare what constitutes good work and to be able to give the imprimatur of expertise endorsement to people's particular intellectual productions. I think the definition of what these fields are and what scholarship is, is what's at stake. Uh, and, and I think that with respect to Afro, the, the end run around James Q. Wilson uh, or the equivalent of James Q. Wilson in the English department or the history department, James Q. Wilson being a Don in government at Harvard for decades and an eminent American political scientist deciding what's political science. So you want to study political science of African-American experience, but you got to get around James Q. Wilson. You don't do that. You create the Department of Afro-American Studies where you can study political science without having to go by James Q. Wilson, this kind of idea. Um, and the the... The very same issues that we would object to with respect to that being a route to bring conservatism into the university, which you enunciated just a moment ago, which I could reduce to two. Uh, you don't want to be ghettoized and you don't want to make that the center of your identity so that it closes you off to the possibility of change. African-Americans ought not be ghettoized in the academy into black studies and they're not ought to be so much focused on their identity as blacks that they lose the possibilities which the university opens up for broadening their horizons. Well, uh, I don't see why it's not a natural fit. And the stakes are extremely high. 
So you're trying to duck the question, but now I want to call you out on that. I'm sort of trying to duck the question, but the other way to think about this is... Because, um, no, wait a minute, hold on. You're trying to duck the question. I'm going to answer the question, sort of. Okay. Um, Okay. So here's me sort of answering the question, right, which is that... Um, you know, we want to, you know, you can become an Af- you could become an Afro-American studies professor, right? And change your opinion and still be studying Afro-American studies, right? Um, you don't want to have a field that says, look, you're being hired to be a conservative, right? Now, what if you get up, what if you have a Glenn Lowry experience, right? You were a conservative and then you learned something or you got something and then you changed your mind. Are you no longer in that department? Do you want to create incentives to say that you actually have to continue with your existing ideological position your entire career? That seems to cut off precisely the changing your mind that universities should be open to, right? Um, I'm not arguing for the Department of Conservative Studies. I'm arguing against the Department of African American Studies. So, okay. Based upon the very reasons that I would be against the Department of Conservative Studies. Right. So the other thing, though, is, you know, the Department of Conservative Studies can't actually train anyone to do this work. Right. That if you're an economist. Right. You can't actually be trained to be a conservative economist in the Department of Conservative Studies because economics is a very rigorous, some cases too rigorous in particular ways. Right. Discipline that actually requires you to go for boot camp in a, you know, in place like MIT or Harvard or whatever to actually get socialized and trained in that particular way. And in some cases to be, you know, spat out when you don't measure up. Right. And the department of conservative studies is not going to be able to do that for people doing that work or ethnographic work or, you know, any of those very highly challenging things that you have to do to be able to do that kind of work. So I don't necessarily see that as the, Solution. I actually think increasingly it may be this problem is not solvable, right? This is the cul-de-sac. So I'm writing a paper on this and right now, and I'm increasingly thinking that all the of problem these- being the problem being the left uh, lean of the uh, ideological orientation of the people in uh, the academia. Yeah, that, is that the problem um, that you think is not solved? Level right, the level of um, institutional commitment you would need to do something about it, right, um, is hard to imagine out of the kind of institution that universities have become, right? Then the silver example is a perfect example of that, right? You would need, you know, an essentially dictatorial president, right, willing to create entire new departments, right, to tear up, you know, to do all that kind of work in order to make more than a very marginal difference, right? And they would need to do it collectively, right? All the presidents of the Ivy Leagues would need to be able to say, we're taking this seriously. So if you go and apply to grad school now in order to be a professor in five or six years, right, we will, you know, A, we will make sure that, you know, you can get admitted, that you're not going to be discriminated against, that, you know, that we are going to make sure that um, the kind of things that departments are searching in are not just reproducing the kind of things that left to center people care about, right? All those presidents would have to do that simultaneously, because otherwise, one president can do it, but you still have to get a job at all the other institutions, right? And that's why as a social problem, 
this is something that it really is a collective action problem. This is a problem that no individual institutional actor can solve on their own, I think. And I think the collective action capacity of these institutions on this dimension are very hard. And universities generally right now think that race is a much bigger legitimation problem for them. In a period I don't know what that means. What does that mean? What does that mean? Race is a bigger legitimation problem I mean, for them. When, if I'm a university president, right, in the aftermath of protests and everything else, right, I think I'm going to be much more likely to think that the representation of African-Americans in my departments and grad school admissions and everything is much more politically central to how I'm going to maintain my job and keep the kids off the, you know, out of my office. Right. Then I, I, okay. I I want to say two things. So I want to address this race thing, but the main thing I want to say say that's a bad thing, right? No. Okay. Back the thing. And the other thing I'll say is, well, is that why you don't comment on Afro-American studies departments? Because you understand the political environment that you're in and you want to remain viable within the system? Wait, say that over again. I said, perhaps like the university presidents in this moment of George Floyd, who know that getting more black students and faculty members is an imperative for their credibility. You don't opine on whether or not the example of end running around the disciplines, which is African-American studies, uh, doesn't also suffer from some of the same disabilities that we've identified in talking about conservatives. Perhaps you don't want to be on record about that or equivocate about that because you realize in this moment of intense scrutiny and what you call racial credibility, these are universities that we're talking about. Um, the, the very fact that they're administered by people whose fingers are in the air measuring the political wins and then altering their institution for eternity. That's what happened in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. The game was changed forever. Uh, In response to these uh, upswellings of popular sentiment that we're talking about universities being debased in this way, ought to occasion some ire, even from the coolly rational Stephen Tellis. I mean, one, I don't necessarily think that the problem of the of African-Americans in a lot of these disciplines and the distribution of uh, conservatives are necessarily rival problems. Um, I think in some ways they're reinforcing, right? And, and I think the problem we talked about before, with all the way back at the beginning when this conversation started, right, that um, it's probably the case that among African-Americans, there's a very differential distribution of who chooses a career in academia or journalism or whatever, right? And I think there's a good argument that um, we ought to be recruiting both more conservatives and more African-Americans who come out of that other part of the African-American tradition. So I don't think those two objectives are rival objectives, right? They're both about who thinks the university is for them. And within that, you still have to maintain standards and, People have to be able to do the work and everything. But I still think there's a fundamental question of who thinks there's a place for them in the university. Um, and I don't want to be in a position thinking that the job of having more African-Americans in some of these fields and the job of having more conservatives are rival objectives. I think in some ways they can actually be reinforcing. If we think okay, about- I, didn't, I didn't mean to suggest that they were they were rivalrous. Right. But I think politically now they are. 
right? Substantively, they are, but from the point of view of a university president at a period in which institutions all over this country are going bankrupt, right? That's the important thing to remember, right, is you went into academia at a moment when, right, they were still growing, right? And the aftermath of COVID, all these institutions that were operating on a razor-thin margin are going to be going bankrupt, and all those people are going to be flooding the market at exactly the time that most universities are not hiring, right? So if there was a period in order to diversify ideologically the professoriate, this would not be the time because there are no jobs, and there will not be jobs probably for a decade, I think. I think the damage to the overall academic labor market is, in fact, relevant to the solving this problem. The reason why the university went so far left was largely because, you know, we had this enormous expansion in the university at exactly the time that people who were on the left tended to flock into it in the 60s and 70s, right? Now we're going to see the reverse point. We're going to see contraction at the time when we ought to be trying to find some place for more ideological diversity, but there are no jobs to do it with. And that's my... That's ultimately the reason why I think this is an unsolvable problem, because it's a hard problem to solve in a period of austerity. Well, um, what if what of movement uh, dynamics that mobilizes alumni, uh, parents, uh, voters uh, that influence the state legislature and governor that affect appropriations? Um, what about... Uh, the, I mean, it's ugly. It, it, they, and, and, and anti-university politics premised around they're too far to the left, the kind of thing that you could imagine the man who sits in the White House now trumpeting would be very, very ugly. Um, I, I can tell you from my correspondence that I've just had the last uh, couple of months, because uh, I've been putting pieces out which are somewhat heterodox or contrarian relative to the mainstream sensibility, especially criticizing the president of my institution, Christina Paxson, for a letter that she sent around, which every university president, de rigueur, sent around. Uh, And people are just writing me, uh, and they're mostly alumni. None of my colleagues, actually, very, very few of my colleagues have said, oh, Glenn, I think that was an important intervention. But a lot of the alumni have said, thank God that there's somebody at the university. Now, this is not by any means scientific. I'm talking about maybe a couple hundred people. Right. And this is Brown University, and we have tens of thousands of alumni. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you could get very far trying to take over a, a board of trustees or a committee chairmanship or something like that to influence something. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if boycotts. I don't know if boycotts wouldn't have any effect or whatever. But just kind of uh, the long game, the long movement game of uh, trying to you know, quote unquote, reform the institutions uh, by changing people's minds one by one. Well, so I'll start out by saying that the board of trustees are going to have the same problem identified earlier as the presidents do, right? They still have this collective action problem, right? Even if they all decided, yeah, we really need to do something about it, right? And they went to write a paper and they said, And then, you know, it's very hard to figure out what you would actually do once having decided you ought to do something about it. I do think there are parts you could do. I mean, the enormous part of the modern university is not in the departments at all, 
right? We've had this ginormous growth in student services, all that. And that, I think, is, if anything, a, big, a bigger issue than the departments, right? Um, a university president has control of all that. And they can, if they want to do, you know, and some of that is regulatory enforcement and other stuff, which is a separate issue. But a university president can actually do a lot on that without asking anybody's permission, right? But the board of trustees and the president, right, have limited what constructively they can do. Now, I do think there's an argument that, and this goes back to my legitimation point, right? Um, you know, if universities come to believe that the guys with the pitchforks are coming, right? That might be enough for them to wake up and say that they have a significant legitimation problem in the same way that they have a legitimation problem where racial and other diversity is concerned, right? That's the fundamental reason why university presidents prioritize that is, you know, just to be really cynical, right? They don't want kids in their office, right? They don't want kids protesting. They don't want them creating problems for them, right? They want to get their next job. And if they are, you know, if they're at X university, they want to get to Y university, having, you know, enormous ongoing conflict with their African-American students is not the best way to do that, right? We call Um, that career concerns, career concerns. Yeah. So, you know, and I think the same thing, you know, now the question is, would conservatives be able to make these issues sufficiently, you know, pressing that a university president would say, I got to do something about this, or I'm not going to be able to get my next job, right? I'm not going to be able to go from provost of my university to president at, you know, whatever, right? And I have a hard time seeing it. I have a hard time seeing them having sufficient pressure to make that a real legitimation concern. The only other thing, this last thing we should probably wrap up, um, you know, I am sort of interested in the idea of creating parallel institutions, right? Um, you know, what if you had somebody who wanted to create the equivalent of the University of Chicago today, right? And there are people who are rich enough to do that, right? Just one, up one day and do it. Um, now, one of the problems is, are there even really enough conservative, you know, again, you wouldn't want everybody to be conservative, but enough to have a very substantial representation even in your one university, if you wanted to make it a, you know, legitimate competitor with Chicago and Harvard and Yale, could you even staff half of a sociology department with people who are pretty conservative? Who want, you want to say are the equivalent to the, right. But yeah. I, I think that's, if, I mean, if you pay them $350,000 a year, you can. Right. So you're obviously a uh, dis- discipline with a different distribution of labor market income than I have. <laughs> I picked a high. I picked a high number because I'm just making the right. point that but I think you, you know, know. You know, you know, Rick Hess, um, who's at AI, who's a very smart guy, um, wrote a whole article basically proposing uh, this. I saw and it. I, you you may have even sent it to me for yeah, all I, I know. Sent it to you. And I think that's an interesting idea. But, and I think there's a lot I, of liberals I, who would who would you know who would join an institution like that. Who would prefer to be in an institution like that than in the kind of institutions they're in. Um, and it would be an adventure, a, a really exciting adventure, actually. But no, I want to say something about technology, which is, aren't we learning in the age of COVID and with Zoom and all of that, that uh, uh, some professor holding forth about some esoteric subject that would be of interest to, you know, students all over the world, uh, who's, you know, 
better, more articulate, more knowledgeable, more better organized, more effective, could have 80% of the market uh, for a, a virtual learning experience of, uh, of, of that particular field. And it, it that, that idea just seems to suggest that, I, you know, you're the one who would have to think through all the institutional modifications uh, that would be required uh, because the credential for the point of employment and reputation enhancement that a college degree represents uh, would would have to be somehow stitched together, and and a whole protocol of the recognition and, af- and and confirmation of its value and all that would have to be worked out. And uh, the, the prestige right now of the existing institutions. Why is the Ivy League more highly regarded? Why is a degree from a Princeton or a Berkeley or a Stanford it worth more and all of that? All of that would have to get reformed somehow. But uh, the idea that I could uh, hold, if, if, if I want to hold forth lectures on race and economics in America, I bet I could get hundreds of thousands of people to, to tune in and listen to those lectures. And a person could make a living doing that. Yeah, but I mean, the important, and I think that's true, and I do think one thing we're going to see is more of a breakdown in the boundaries of universities themselves, right? That is one of the things that's bizarre is that the people who treat, teach intro classes don't, why do they all need to be in the same institution, right? Why can't I create an intro class where we get some economies of scale with somebody, with Susan Mettler at Cornell and Paul Pearson at Berkeley, and we all work together and we teach one class together, right? And we get economies of scale, right? I think some of those institutional changes may happen, but especially when you think about the, you know, entry into the profession, right? That's a kind of board, sorry to get pretentious, but a, this pretentiousness warning, right? There, that's a sort of Bourdieuian deeming function, right? Um, that is, some institutions have the ability to sort of place their hands over someone and say, you are the kind of person who can be a university professor, right? How many Nobody's people, political scientists... How many people, political scientists or economists, know about Pierre Bourdieu's book, uh, Distinction? I think a lot of people do, especially in sociology. It's a very big. I was saying political science and economics. You're a political scientist. I'm an economist. Oh, I, know right. so, I know that book. I know that book. And I very much like that book. Um, some political theorists in political science would, but very few. I mean, okay. I, I use Bourdieu in my conservative legal movement book to think about law schools and law schools sort of functions and especially why those that distinction is so sticky, right? Um, why there's so little market entry um, to the institutions that generate distinction. Um, and I do think that's one of the problems, right, is if you were, you know, if you created Charles Koch University, right, would it actually be able to perform a social deeming function, right? So that, I'll give you the last example, and then we should stop. Um, you know, conservatives created the Bradley Prize, Right. It was supposed to be the parallel to the MacArthur Prize. Now, I shouldn't mess this up because maybe they're going to give you one um, and you could you know, <laughs> do some serious work on your house if they gave you one. Um, well, in which case, I should not tell anybody that I've never heard of it before. <laughs> so, well, the Bradley, the Bradley Foundation, which you certainly have, right, has a prize that was supposed to be like their equivalent to the yeah, uh, yeah. MacArthur Genius Prize. Right. Now, the fact that you haven't heard of it says something. Right. It says that they were trying to create some parallel structure of esteem and distinction. It wasn't so easy to do. And you can't just 
pull it out of your butt. You can't, you know, generate distinction that way. And that's one of the fundamental challenges here. So, all right, we should, we should. Uh, we, you are calling our conversation to a close, Steve. I actually gave you 20 more minutes than I usually give. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gave for, it to me. I was offered I to you, Glenn. <laughs> Uh, that's Steve Tellis, uh, Johns Hopkins, Glenn Lauer here at the Glenn Show. Uh, we've been talking about uh, ideological uh, diversity or uh, in the universities and why it matters and what can be done about it. So thanks, Steve. Thank you, Glenn.